Alright, welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, we are back with Vascular Part 2. Um, additional things i just talk about real quick. Uh, with the book, the BTK Absite Review Series, that's on Amazon. Um, a lot of people are buying it. It's been pretty popular this year. If you guys don't mind and you bought it and you like it, please uh, reach out to Amazon and put a review on there. That just allows for it to make the top of the charts on Amazon and people can find it a lot easier. Additional items, if you're having any trouble uh, with the podcast audio, uh, we are republishing a lot of these podcasts this year and just due to general technology problems, sometimes they get cut short or if you notice anything weird within the podcast, just reach out to us and we'll get that fixed. A few, thank you to the people who have done that. All right, Kevin, take it away. So John, what is the most common splanchnic aneurysm? So the most common one you'd find uh, in one most commonly tested is the splenic uh, uh, aneurysm. And what patients are at highest risk for these splenic aneurysms? So pregnant patients are the ones you usually see questions on, and also patients with portal hypertension. Great. Okay, so John, what is the clinical presentation of a patient that presents with a ruptured splenic aneurysm? Yep, like we talked about in a previous podcast, you have that double rupture. So you have a, an aneurysm that will uh, rupture within the lesser sac, uh, and then eventually, after time, uh, you'll have a, a free intraperitoneal rupture after it leaves the, uh, the, uh, excuse me, the lesser sac. Great. And so what are your criteria if you have a patient that comes in, uh, a pregnant patient, has appendicitis or something, gets a CT scan, and they note a splenic aneurysm on that CT scan? What are your indications for an elective repair of a splenic aneurysm? So the bottom line for any uh, uh, pregnant patient, it's uh, repair any splenic aneurysm. Uh, for anybody else, it's usually when it's greater than two centimeters. Great. And what are your go-to treatment options? So any pregnant patient who has a splenic aneurysm or patient or or any woman of childbearing age should have it repaired immediately. Uh, and then for anyone else, it's greater than two centimeters. The mortality, once you have a splenic artery aneurysm rupture, is like 75%. So the they're pretty strict criteria because of that. Um, so if you find it Incidentally, or they're not exsanguinating, you can do coil embolization. If the patient comes in with a rupture, you're going to do an exploratory laparotomy and a splenectomy to remove this splenic aneurysm. Okay, just really briefly, Jason, uh, what are the other sites that you see splenic aneurysms and what are your uh, criteria to repair them? Uh, so, um, other than your splenic, an or splenic aneurysms, um, you can see hepatic or SMA aneurysms. These are very, very rare. Uh, the treatment size is generally the same, two centimeters um, for these visceral aneurysms. Um, and for these, you generally need to resect and reconstruct. Right. And so, it's important to note. So, you are going to repair these same size criteria, two centimeters. But you obviously can't just, for the most part, ligate your hepatic artery or ligate your SMA. Um, you're going to have to resect and reconstruct these patients if that question does come up. Okay. Um, so, John, on to iliac. Um, a lot of times these are seen in association with aortic disease, but we're talking about just incidentally found iliac artery aneurysms. Uh, what are your size criteria for these patients? Yeah, these are uh, relatively rare uh, lesions that you want to repair them if they're symptomatic or if they have uh, greater than three and a half centimeters. And your endovascular repair is your best option here. Right. So uh, as Dr. Aronson said in the 2017 vascular appetite review, uh, if you're doing it with a aortic aneurysm, you'll generally repair these at around three centimeters. But if um, these are found isolated, and uh, you'll repair these at 3.5. And these can be very morbid um, due to their location in a deep in the pelvis trying to repair these. So um, they can be 
quite difficult. So, uh, John, what is your criteria for repairing femoral aneurysms? So the new cutoff uh, in previous ABSA reviews, it said about two and a half centimeters. So are you going to resect and place interposition, or are you going to do an exclusion and bypass? These patients, you resect and place the interposition. Right. So Jason, uh, popliteal aneurysms, we talked about this briefly last year. Uh, what are these associated with, and what are how do these present? Uh, so uh, popliteal aneurysms are frequently associated with AAAs. So um, about 50% of the time, if you have a patient with a popliteal aneurysm, they're also going to have a AAA. So you need to image the abdomen um, if you do diagnose a popliteal aneurysm. So are you worried about rupture in these patients? Uh, no, no. It's not rupture you're so much worried about as it is uh, embolization. Right. So you have uh, embolization or thrombosis is what you're most concerned about in these patients, the popliteal aneurysms. Um, and so, Jason, what is your size criteria for this? Uh, so, uh, for asymptomatic, it's two centimeters. Um, and then any symptomatic patient would be, um, elective for repair. And then are there some other criteria that you would maybe consider repairing? So yeah, if you have a mural thrombus, um, or it's doing anything that's going to affect the distal flow. So you have a poor runoff. Those would also be indications for repair. Right. And so how about this patient? Is it the same as the femoral? Uh, aneurysm, are you going to do a resection and interposition on these patients? Um, so no, for these patients, you want to do uh, exclusion and bypass is, is typically going to be the answer um, on the test. Um, anything uh, that distal, you're going to want to opt for a vein graft uh, and avoid any um, prosthesis if you can. Uh, I know there there are out there in the population or out there in the community. Um, there's some newer stents that um, are being used uh, for these, uh, but the standard treatment is bypass and exclusion. That's definitely going to be the answer on the boards. Right, and the way I remember this is that you can do an exclusion and bypass with the patient in supine from medial incision. If you truly want to do a a good resection and interposition. Uh, it'd be pretty hard to do from the medial approach given the course of the popliteal artery. So these patients, you're going to just exclude it and bypass it. So you'll leave it there. The aneurysm will still be there, but there'll be no blood flow through it. So John, uh, we always get questions on these. Uh, You have the patient that has either renal hypertension or has carotid disease, and they say on their CT angio, they have beads of string appearance. What is this and how is this treated and why is this something to know about? Yep, that's essentially pathognomonic for fibromuscular dysplasia. Uh, It's most commonly found in the renal arteries, but like Kevin mentioned, you can also get it in the internal carotids as well. Uh, And your treatment is balloon angioplasty uh, is your your first line. Right. And whichever place it is, the renals or the carotids will be the two questions we'll get. You do balloon angioplasty. And this is actually a good question that they could give you a picture for. Um, so I would Google, you know, angiographic findings of this because this is a this is a classic one that you could be um, given an image and asked how you'd treat it, and they wouldn't tell you anything about the beads on a string sign. Okay, so Jason, we're just going to briefly uh, cover AAA indications. W- what are the indications you're currently using when you're repairing AAAs? Okay, so for operative repair AAAs, um, we'll start with the easy ones. So um, if they're symptomatic, uh, they need to uh, they need treatment. If it's infected, it needs treatment. Um, the size cutoff uh, for men, uh, five and a half centimeters is going to be my cutoff. It's going to be slightly smaller for females, five centimeters. 
Uh, and then you also want to look at the growth rate. So if it grows greater than a centimeter, a centimeter in a one-year time period, uh, that's another indication for repair. So since you brought it up, what are the two most common um, organisms involved in mycotic aneurysms? Uh, so for mycotic aneurysm, the classically, uh, the organism taught is salmonella, and that used to be the answer for the most common. Uh, now, uh, I believe the answer for the most common is going to be staph. But staph and salmonella are going to be the two most common organisms. Great. And so mycoses is generally associated with fungi, um, but not when we're talking about aneurysms. So, John, uh, you're doing an aortic repair. You've, you're, you've sewed everything in, and you're trying to decide, do I re-implant this IMA? Do I add another 45 minutes to my procedure? What are kind of criteria you're going to use to decide to re-implant that IMA? Yeah, so this is an intraoperative decision. Uh, you want to first look at your back pressure um, of your IMA. Uh, is it is it very good? Is it is it poor? Is it less than forty millimeters of mercury? Uh, and also look at the colon as well. Uh, is it appear dusky, or did they have a history of previous colon surgery? Great. And then, um, Jason, why does previous colonic surgery? Why is that an important question to ask your patients that are getting uh, a AAA repair? Uh, so when you, you're going to disrupt with your previous surgery, you're going to disrupt your collateral flow. So you're talking about your arcarelan, your marginal artery, you may have uh, disrupted that collateral flow that you otherwise would have. Right. And so if you, if a patient has had previous colonic surgery, you're going to have a lower threshold to re-implant the IMA because they're going to have a higher risk of uh, colonic ischemia. Um, so now since we're talking about preserving vessels, John, how about your internal iliac? Say you're doing an aortobifem and uh, you're trying to decide if you're going to um, preserve your internal iliacs. What, what are your decision making on that? I'll also ask you what, if you need to preserve your hypogastrics as well. Mm-hmm. And you want to make sure you ensure flow to at least one of them. Right. And so just remember, hypogastrics and internal iliacs are used interchangeably. And you want to make sure uh, you preserve blood flow to at least one of them. Otherwise, um, there's a risk of uh, buttock claudication and, uh, pelvic ischemia. So Jason, you know, the ER calls you, they have a patient with a AAA of four centimeters and, uh, you know, you see the patient and you tell them to follow up with me. What, what study are you going to order for them on their follow-up in a year? Uh, so we're assuming this is an asymptomatic patient that had an incidentally found four centimeter AAA. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So for asymptomatic patient with a four centimeter, I'm going to tell them to follow up with, um, an annual, uh, duplex of the abdominal aorta. Exactly. Okay, John, we're gonna talk about a few complications of your AAA. This is, you know, almost more common than the questions of indications to treat is managing the complications. A lot of times these involve general surgery. So you have a patient that had their AAA repaired and they're getting close to leaving the hospital, but then they kind of develop ascites. They have some uh, abdominal distension that's not painful. You see it on, um, you know, you get a CT of their abdomen because you're concerned and uh, you see a fluid collection, you tap it, it's a milky fluid. What is this and how do you want to treat this? Yeah, after an open AAA, uh, you can develop uh, chylase ascites. Uh, the treatment is a low fat, high protein diet with the, the, the medium chain fatty acids supplementation. And if that doesn't work, then you have to place the patient MPO with TPN. So wait, why not a long chain fatty acid supplementation? 
Yeah, so your long-chain fatty acids are uh, absorbed through your chylomicrons into your lymphatic system, or your medium chains are absorbed directly into the bloodstream. Right, and so they're, they're absorbed directly into the portal system. So whether it's related to vascular or not, you're going to get a patient with some sort of chylus complication. These patients, you're going to put on a low-fat, high-protein diet with medium-chain fatty acid supplementation, um, and that will hopefully um, allow their chylus leak to resolve. And... Um, yeah, that's the treatment. So, Jason, so you're clamp, you're doing an open aortic repair, and you're clamping the aorta in the suprarenal position, and you have massive blood flow, um, blood loss behind your aorta. Um, what is likely the reason for this? Uh, so when you're so first off, the, the left renal vein is um, subject to injury whenever you're dissecting in your suprarenal aorta, either whether it's in its normal anatomic position or whether it's a retroaortic. But I think what you're going for is, you know, particularly if you have a retroaortic um, renal vein, um, you can injure it when you cross-clamp your aorta, and that is a bad situation. Right. Essentially a side hole to your inferior vena cava um, you're letting loose. So you definitely want to be careful of the left renal vein, especially if it is anomalous in the retroaortic position. A little tidbit, we don't think we have a urology podcast, but they're going to ask you the hilar vessels of the kidney. The answer is the renal vein, the renal artery, and then the pelvic collecting duct system. So that is the normal arrangement. Um, And the renal vein is normally anterior to the aorta, but at times it can be retroaortic. Okay, I think we've beat that into the ground. So, John, uh, another dreaded situation uh, post-up day one, the patient develops after a AAA repair, endovascular or open, abdominal pain, bloody diarrhea. What are you concerned about? Yeah, this is one of your more uh, more common things that you might encounter in practice is that you may have uh, ischemic colitis and you want to do a, a sigmoidoscopy to help diagnose this and then the patient needs to be adequately resuscitated and you want to start IV antibiotics as well. The majority of these people will be managed non-operatively. However, like any type of general surgery world, is if you have, they develop peritonitis, sepsis, or they have a free perforation or necrosis, then you need to have take them to the opera room for a, a total domicolectomy in Hartman's pouch. Yeah. And so, John, uh, it's a lot harder to get uh, the GI nurse to come down and set up the sigmoidoscope. But I have a proctoscope uh, in my clinic, um, and I could just do the evaluation there of their rectum. Um, and, you know, and, and tell them if they have this problem. Is, is that adequate? Is, a, is proctoscopy adequate? No, the proctoscope isn't adequate because you have good uh, collateral flow from your middle and distal rectal arteries uh, because they originate from the internal iliac, not from the IMA. So you need really need a sigmoid to look or a sigmoidoscopy to look at everything. Right. I've never seen that question, but if I was writing questions in a few years, I'd, I'd probably ask that question. So um, you need a sigmoidoscopy because the rectum has... A different blood flow from the internal iliacs and not the inferior mesenteric artery. Okay, Jason, uh, your patient comes in with fevers, chills, um, and some abdominal pain, you know, three months after the aortic graft repair. Uh, what are you concerned about? How are you going to diagnose it? And uh, what is your treatment for it? So that sounds like um, a graft infection. So I would diagnose it with... Um, some labs, some cultures, I'd get some imaging, CT scan, potentially a white blood cell scan. Um, and, uh, yeah, that would be my approach to diagnosis. 
Great. And sometimes people will do a tap of these or something of the fluid collection around the aorta. But what is your treatment going to be? Uh, so if you confirm that you have a graft infection, you need uh, graft excision first and foremost. You need source control. Uh, and then you need an extra anatomic bypass. Um, so either for this patient, either an axe bifem or an axe fem or uh, with a fem-fem bypass. Great. And so this is an important point to, to remember for no matter where in the body you have a bypass. If you have a fluid collection that is infected on the ab site, you are going to take down that graft and do a somehow redo the bypass. Um, you're never going to you know treat it with antibiotic beads. You're never just going to drain it. You have to do the dramatic. Sometimes it seems really dramatic and there's no bleeding. There's nothing's going that bad. But this will rupture. This will create a pseudoaneurysm and rupture if you do not adequately treat this. And bypass through normal tissue. So the extra anatomic. So you can't simply take the graft out and put in a new one. You have to go through healthy tissue. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, John, uh, you know, we have some fancy technology now we're able to do the endovascular aortic repairs what are the general criteria that you want to use on the ab site for um, patients that qualify for an abdominal endovascular repair yeah so looking at your uh, your first part the neck of the uh, just below your renals you want a neck diameter at least of 32 or 3.2 centimeters you want to angle less than 60 degrees uh, and you want a length of at least uh, one centimeter uh, if you're going down to the iliacs, you want to look at your landing zones. You want a iliac, iliac diameter of at least seven millimeters, uh, and you also want a, uh, a landing zone greater than one centimeter. Great. Um, and so this is probably definitely going to be one question on your website. Just know the indications for EVAR and ones that. So the things I've seen that are asked most commonly are the diameters being too small for the access vessels. So if they give you a five millimeter iliac. Uh, you're not going to be able to get the graft up there. Um, and that will be an indication for an open procedure. If they give you extremely angulated or if they give you a short landing zone less than a centimeter, these are patients that are going to need an open aortic abdominal repair. Okay, Jason, uh, can you talk to me about the types of endoleaks there? There's five types of endoleaks, um, really four relevant ones. So there's type one endoleaks which um, are, are either there's type 1A versus type 1B, which means there's an, not a seal at the proximal or distal landing zone of the graft. So stuff's leaking in either distally or proximally. There's type 2, um, which is uh, usually re- resultant from back bleeding from you know, one of your lumbars. Uh, there's type 3, which is a leak between the components of your grafts. Um, and there's type four, which is a, uh, due to the porosity of the graft material. And then there's type five, which is, uh, endotension, yeah. which is defined as endotension. And there's, it's still, I, I've read a lot about it and it still confuses me how that's different than type four. Don't lie. You have not read a lot about that. At one point in my life, I read a lot about it. It's been a little while, but I, I have read a lot about it. Okay, so you're performing your angio after your EVAR placement. What are the two types of endoleaks you have to fix right then and there? So type one, um, so if there's leakage either from either the proximal or distal landing zone, you have to repair that. And then type three, if there's leakage between um, the connection of the components, uh, that needs repair. 
Right. And, and what would be your indication for pairing a type two? So, uh, so type two will generally stop on its own or generally remain stable. Um, uh, but however, if the sack is enlarging, um, you do need to repair those as well. Great. Okay, John, we're going to dive into vascular surgery 101. How do you calculate an ankle brachial index? And I have seen this on tests before, and you really actually need to know this. Yeah, the short answer is uh, you take, you measure your pedal pressures, and you take whichever is the highest, the DP or the PT, and you divide it by the highest brachial uh, uh, pressure on either the right or left arm. Right. So if they give you the right arm of a pressure of systolic of 130, and they give you but you're measuring the ABI in the left foot, you will still use the right arm as part of the denominator. So please uh, don't forget that. Um, okay, John, um, interpreting ABI is real briefly, we all know this, but can you just tell us uh, kind of your general rules for interpreting ABIs? Yeah, so you think of anything greater than 0.9 uh, is normal up to 1.4. You can actually have higher than that if you're a patient with diabetes or whatnot. Uh, anything between 0.5 and 0.9, you may have a patient, they have some uh, symptoms of claudication. Anything less than 0.5, uh, you have typically a patient with rest pain. Uh, they may have rest pain. Some people don't. And anything less than 0.3, it'll be a risk for tissue loss. Great. And one thing I, I, we didn't spend any time on and we're not going to is the traumatic uh, peripheral vascular disease. But... Generally, you can really rely heavily on your ABIs, especially in the abscite, on for traumatic vascular disease. So you have some sort of distal extremity injury, um, and you have a normal ABI that will generally complete your workup. So if it's greater than 0.9, uh, you're not going to need to do an angiogram. Uh, you can generally so ABIs are very useful, especially in trauma, um, to reassure you about your patient. Um, but Jason, just as I said that. When are ABIs not reliable? Uh, so classical, I mean, so patients who are diabetic, um, and this is pretty typical. They'll give you a patient who has classic uh, clotic, uh, claudication or peripheral vascular disease symptoms, and they'll say, well, their ABI is one, and then they'll ask you what you want to do. Um, if that patient's diabetic, you can't rely on that ABI because uh, their vessels are calcified, so you have to go more distal to their toe pressures. Great. Okay, uh, John, they give you the patient that's out golfing and gets calf claudication, and uh, they want to get a bypass surgery done um, in this first time seeing you. What, what do you do for them? Yep, this is where they try to fool you. Um, if you're like me, try to jump into operating on claudication right off the bat. But your first choice should be smoking cessation, exercise, and then statin therapy. And so what would your primary indications be for operating on claudication? So any patient coming in with critical limb ischemia, uh, they usually present a patient uh, with a severe-looking uh, right or left leg uh, or foot, and then any patient has uh, a significant rest pain. Right. So you're going to have tissue loss is going to be uh, the main indication for operating on uh, peripheral extremities, and then also rest pain uh, are the two uh, definite indications for operating. Um, so, Jason, how are you going to image vessels? You have a patient comes in, they've maybe have a little ulcer on their foot and uh, you need to complete your work up here. Well, if you can CTA, I mean, it, it's good, especially for proximal vessels um, and specifically to the level of the knee gets a little bit trickier distal to that. Um, the problem is a lot of these patients have co uh, renal disease, so they can't handle the contrast load. 
So from there, um, angiography uh, can, uh, if you can use less contrast to, to visualize the distal vessels, um, that's a good option. And if you really can't use any contrast at all, you have a CO2 angiography. Great. Yep. So, um, you know, generally you're not going to jump to angiography. CTA is uh, quite good at um, analyzing inflow, but distal to the leg, uh, CTA becomes less helpful. And sometimes you need angiography for that. So, John, uh, as far as planning vascular surgery goes, specifically bypass surgery, you've got a patient, they've got a long SFA occlusion and uh, not amenable to in vascular repair. What are the three basic principles of vascular surgery in repairing this? Yeah, so it's it's actually quite easy. You think of where you're going to get the blood flow from, so that's your inflow, where it's going to leave, and that's your outflow, and whether you have to bypass anything uh, if you're using some type of vessel or a vein or another type of conduit. Great. And so, and Wait a minute, I, I thought inflow, outflow, and cash flow were the three principles of vascular <laughs> surgery. That, that, that are people that are more naive. Um, but the one thing I have seen is they'll give you a, uh, you know, a, ask you about a pedal bypass and a patient that has very poor options for outflow. They may have great inflow, may have a great uh, saphenous vein to use. But if, if it doesn't have a good outflow or, you know, Vice versa, it doesn't have a good inflow. These will not last. Or if it doesn't have a good conduit, and you're not going to want to do a distal extremity uh, revascularization without a uh, good conduit such as the saphenous vein. Okay. Briefly, Jason, can you just take us through patients that you would consider for endovascular versus open repair? Uh, so this can be a little little complex, um, and I don't think we're going to get into the minutia of the different task uh, lesions and how to treat each one. But in general, especially for the board, so you want to con- consider endovascular interventions for lesions that are short and not health- heavily calcified. Uh, for longer lesions um, that are too long for a stent or he- heavily calcified, you want to start leaning towards bypass. For things like the common femoral artery, um, it's a little bit unusual to treat those endovascular just because they're so easily accessible and they're so mobile um, that that uh, they would be prone to uh, kinking uh, if you were to try an endovascular approach. Um, and again, just because they're so easily acceptable, accessible operatively. Yeah, it probably not terribly high yield, but it might be worthwhile to take a look at the task uh, criteria and that will help you determine which patients are uh, best treated with endovascular versus open, but I really don't think that's terribly high yield. So we'll keep driving on to some more high yield uh, topics. So John, uh, patient presents with buttock claudication, impotence, and absence of femoral pulses. What is the syndrome called and how will you treat it? So this is your Lariche syndrome and you have aortic iliac uh, uh, disease. Right. And so, so Jason, I, I've heard of patients that also have aortic uh, iliac bifurcation disease uh, from an embolus. Um, you know, they have AFib like we've talked about before, and they get a large embolus at their aortic iliac uh, bifurcation. I would imagine Lariche and the embolus are treated the same. Not true. Uh, so Lariche syndrome is um, a chronic, you know, atherosclerotic process. So these patients would typically be treated with something like an aorta bifem. Uh, acute embolus at the aortic bifurcation um, 
is uh, more obviously acute at onset, and these patients need a uh, bilateral transfemoral retrograde embolectomy uh, with anticoagulation. So two different disease processes, two different approaches. Right, kind of like our uh, mesenteric ischemia embolus versus thrombosis, completely different treatments. Uh, Same at the aortic bifurcation and embolus. You can just do a embolectomy by just cutting down on the uh, femoral vessels and doing retrograde uh, embolectomies versus the reach where um, they have a you know diseased aorta that needs a complete aortic uh, bifemoral bypass. Okay, uh, just real quickly, I just want to make sure everyone takes a second and opens up Google when they get home or pull over to the side of the road. And look up an angiogram of the distal extremity. Uh, these are free points that are easy, but if you haven't looked at one in a while, you may not be able to identify the difference between the anterior tibial artery, the posterior tibial artery, and the perineal. Uh, the best way to think of this is the anterior tibial will be the first one that comes off, and then you'll branch off into your tibial perineal trunk. The one that goes next to the fibula is going to be your perineal artery, the one that stays Believe it or not, behind the tibia is going to be your posterior tibial artery. Okay, so just take a second, open it up, look at it. It's going to get you a point on the ab site. So, Jason, I just want to cover one last thing. I, for whatever reason, can never remember the four compartments of the lower leg. I know we've covered it already, but I just want to talk about what's actually in each compartment. So, starting with the lateral lower leg, what are those two compartments on the lateral side and what is in each of those compartments that's important? So on the lateral side, you have your anterior and your lateral um, compartments. So in your anterior, you're going to have your anterior tibular artery. In your lateral, you're going to have your superficial perineal nerve. Great. And John, uh, for the medial part of your fasciotomies, what are those two compartments and what are in those compartments? So that's your superficial and deep... Uh, uh, posterior compartments your superficial the pertinent ones are your, your gastroc is in there and your uh, sural nerve will be running in there as well and your deep posterior compartment um, it contains the tibial nerve the posterior tibial artery and the peroneal the peroneal artery right so the deep posterior compartment that is where most of the important things lie you have your tibial nerve your posterior tibial artery and perineal artery so the deep posterior compartment is right behind the tibia this is you access through your medial incision and this is what is so important about taking down that soleus so you can actually fully expose and access this compartment okay so anterior and lateral compartments are accessed from the lateral side the medial side are the superficial and deep posterior compartments okay now uh, i know you guys are really excited to talk about this topic we're going to dive into diabetic foot infections okay so uh jason what vessels does diabetes affect so uh, diabetes is, affects your microvasculature, so it's going to affect your small vessels of feet, um, as well as uh, classically it affects your tibial vessels. Right. So smokers are generally going to get the aortoiliac disease, the more fun disease as far as surgeons are concerned, um, and diabetics get the tibial disease and the small vessel disease. Uh, Jason, you have a patient that comes in with a, a wound on their foot, they're diabetic, uh, you know, maybe looks a little funky. What is the first thing you want to rule out in this patient? Uh, osteomyelitis. Okay. And so you rule out osteomyelitis, um, but they have a little wound, a little uh, cellulitis. 
How long are you going to keep on antibiotics for? Well, first, I think an important. So let's let's return to that osteomyelitis thing because I've, I've I know I've seen it a few times where they'll give you options of how you want to diagnose that. Uh, so they'll they'll either give you imaging, um, and I think I would choose MRI as the best option. A lot of times they'll give you like bone biopsy or something like that. <laughs> don't don't choose that because what you'll end up doing is end up seeding where they didn't have osteomyelitis before. Now they do. Um, so MRI would be the the diagnosis of choice for that. Right. And so a lot of times the way they'll lead you away from MRI is that, you know, all these patients have multiple implants that aren't, you know, MRI compatible. Uh, and so then I believe the white cell, tagged white cell scan is the best. I agree. I think that's what I would go with. MRI first, if they can't for whatever reason, white blood cell scan, but steer clear of bone biopsy for diagnosis right. of, of osteomyelitis. And it is a little confusing because sometimes a wound biopsy is helpful, but a bone biopsy will never be the answer. Okay, so John, uh, say the uh, osteo. Oh, sorry. We, one thing we didn't finish covering was you want to continue the antibiotics until the ulcer base is clean and there's no evidence of cellulitis. So there's no definitive length on the antibiotics until the wound is um, healing appropriately and no evidence of cellulitis. So John, uh, say the MRI does show some increased uptake in the bone uh, and you're diagnosing osteomyelitis. Is does the treatment differ? Yeah, it does. Uh, you want to proceed with debridement. You're going to do debridement usually of these anyways, but debridement's a healthy bone and usually get prolonged antibiotics for four to six weeks as well. Great. And Jason, uh, so what if you have a non-healing ulcer and the angiogram identifies there is an inflow problem that can be corrected? Well, so this is a patient that you can consider uh, revascularization. Um, however, you have to remember that this is a microvascular disease. So in, in order... in in addition to collect, correcting the inflow, you need to have a good target vessel. Great. Okay. Uh, we're almost done with vascular. We have two last topics. Uh, venous disease is going to be the majority of our last topic. Okay. Uh, for venous disease, uh, we talk a little bit in the 2017 vascular update review about venous disease, but one thing we didn't talk about was vascular venous trauma. Uh, so, John... Uh, what vessels in trauma you've got an exsanguinating patient. This is not a minimally, you know, minimal trauma patient. This is a seriously ill trauma patient, uh, that has significant interabdominal bleeding. What vessels can you ligate in trauma as far as venous disease goes? Yeah. So the easiest way to look, think about this for your, your tests is any vein distal to the renal veins. Obviously this comes with a uh, substantial morbidity. Uh, but if the patient is dying, you have to consider it. Right. Um, okay. And then how about the renal veins themselves, Jason? Uh, is there one that is, uh, able to be divided and one that's not? Yeah. With some caveats. So you can divide the left, um, renal vein if it's, if proximal to the gonadal vein and the gonadal vein is intact, um, to allow retrograde drainage. Right. Um, and so if you cannot, so say it is your, your right renal vein is devastated um in trauma and an ill patient what is going to be your therapy um well if it's if it's not amenable to repair and your patient's crashing then you would need to do a nephrectomy great okay so just key points to remember is that any vein distal to the renal veins can be divided uh ligated in trauma um you will suffer significant morbidity and problems but if it is to save their life uh that is an option um, John, one last thing about venous disease that we see frequently 
you have a patient uh, comes in with a swollen blue leg. Uh, what are you worried about and what is the treatment? Yes, yeah, this is classical, uh, classic for phlegmasia and cerulea dolens, uh, and it's an iliofemoral DVT, and they will need uh, catheter-directed thrombolysis. Right. So these patients have what is an iliofemoral DVT, very large DVT, and uh, these patients need uh, urgent thrombolysis. So Jason, which on venous disease, we're going to dive a little bit into DVTs, deep venous thrombosis. What is the most common location of a DVT and which leg has a higher rate of DVT? So your iliofemoral uh, location is the highest location for uh, deep venous thrombosis and the left leg, left leg is more prone to forming these. Why is the left leg more prone? So it has to do with your anatomy. So your, your right um, iliac artery crosses over and can compress your left um, iliac vein ever so slightly. And uh, what is that syndrome called? Uh, May-Thurner syndrome. Yes, very important thing to know. Uh, and, and I don't think this would come up on the test, but stenting the iliac vein is the treatment for that. John, you have a trauma patient. They have a head bleed. Um, and you note bilateral PEs in this patient. What is this an indication for? And uh, where are you gonna, how, how are you going to do this? So these patients would warrant an IVC filter, among a bunch of other reasons why you'd place an IVC filter. But the, the ones you'd see in a test uh, on the abside of a patient who's had a recent bleeding, recent uh, uh, head injury with uh, bleeding as well. But you want to place the IVC filter uh, distal to the renal veins. Right. And so for the test, you generally use the right IJ because it's the most direct access to the vena cava. Uh, you you know go through the superior vena cava, inferior vena cava, distal to the renal veins and place your IVC filter. Important to know that. Maybe look at a little video of that. Some seems to be a common question. Okay, Jason, close out vascular surgery. Our favorite topic is DVTs. Some more DVTs. Provoke DVT. How long are you going to treat these patients? Uh, provoke DVT, the treatment is three months. What does a provoke DVT mean? Uh, so that's somebody who's had either like a, a surgery, trauma, um, any reason to have a DVT. Right. So a patient has DVT, PE, um, from trauma, or you did bariatric surgery on them, something, uh, three months of therapy, and then kind of reevaluate. Uh, John, how about a patient that has uh, metastatic colorectal cancer, and uh, they got a DVT and PE in their hospital stay? How long do you leave them on therapy? Yep. So you want to continue therapy until you no longer have that uh, cancer or, the, or they've been cured. Great. And then how about a patient that has a hypercoagulable disorder? Those patients get lifelong therapy. What is the most common hypercoagulable disorder? Factor five, Leiden. Great. We have a great hematology episode in 2017 that you can learn more well, about that. I guess we should, we should preface that with the most common inherited or genetic uh, hypercoagulable disorder. Uh, the most common hypercoagulable disorder, I think, is probably smoking, would you say? Yes. You just yeah. saved me about five emails. Thank you for <laughs> clarifying that. Um, and that was probably at least you know a couple of four-star reviews if I had missed that. I would have given that three. Okay. So to close out vascular for good, let's go through our quick hits. Jason, how do you access the SMA in trauma? 
So you lift the transverse colon and mobilize the uh, ligament of trites. John, how do you expose the supraceliac aorta in trauma? So you want to enter the lesser sac through the gastrohepatic ligament and uh, divide down to the posterior cruce, and then you want to compress the aorta from there. Uh, Jason, what is the the biggest risk factor for ischemic colitis in a patient that had a uh, AAA repaired? Uh, pre-op hypotension. Okay. And a few of our favorite vasculitis is, uh, John, you have an old lady with headaches, has temporal blindness, quote-unquote, and fatigue. What is this, and how do you treat it? Yep, this is a classic for temporal arteritis. Uh, you can diagnose it with a temporal artery biopsy, and the treatment is with corticosteroids. Uh, Jason, uh, Boeger's disease. This is the guy that's uh, smoking and has digital ischemia. What vessels are affected in Boeger's disease? Uh, so it's a small and medium vessel disease. All right. And though even though mycotic refers to fungi and vascular, that is not the case. So, Jason, what is the most common organism in a mycotic aneurysm? Uh, Staphylococcus. All right. Well, that wraps up our vascular podcast, part ones and two. Uh, I think next is breast and then hematology to follow.